0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper Leagues to Top 1000 Mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at PureMTGO.com, where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com how's it going everybody it is about two o'clock friday afternoon may the 15th 2020 and it's time for this the 72nd or 73rd i honestly can't remember at this point we're in the 70s but it's we're we're between 70 and 75 anyway i think we're 73 maybe (laughs) 73rd trip down the homeward path my name is adam i'm a husband father of three now just finished probably hour 58 this week at work. So somehow some way we try our best using the time and finances that we have available to us to make competitive magic a possibility. Even though necessarily we're not focused on the grind, and we still want to improve. So for those of you out there in a situation similar to me, I hope you can glean some useful information from this. So I'm not even jumping into the fast lane this week. We're going to take our time. We're going to do this nice and slow because I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart and a lot of the Twitter and Facebook discourse over the last, cu- over the last couple of weeks have really kind of inspired the topic, but rather than go into a rant one way or the other on companions or one way or the other on the standard format as a whole... Instead of using this as an opportunity to try to lampoon Wizards of the Coast for doing a bad job building my favorite card game or telling them they messed up, plenty of people are doing that. I don't want to get in on that. I love magic and I don't want it to change, but I understand that things get pulled in different directions. Instead, I want to talk about something else because I, I have the benefit of having played magic for a very long time at least by today's standards, doing anything for a long time. To put it in perspective, I've I've been married for almost 10 years. Uh, July will be our 10th anniversary. We dated for five years before that, and I started playing Magic the fall before that. I started playing Magic a year before that. So 16 years I've been playing Magic the Gathering. Competitive off and on for probably about 11 of them. Uh, The first year doesn't count, and then there was a, a hiatus somewhere in the middle where I was more a casual follower than I was an active player. But over my time playing Magic, I've seen a lot of set designs. I've seen a lot of worlds visited. I've seen a lot of mechanics introduced into the game. And got to thinking about it because of a lot of the discourse around how busted companions were. And it seems like the conversation is either it's not as busted as Affinity, so it's not busted, or it's the most broken mechanic of all time because you start with an extra card always in your hand and you always have access to it. And there's not really a lot of in-between on them. And I've already said my piece about companions. I like them. I enjoy them. It's an unpopular opinion, but I enjoy them. I think they present unique aspects to deck building. I think the the design on them is fantastic. Yes, some of them are too powerful, especially Lurus and older formats. I get it wholeheartedly. I understand where you're all coming from. So rather than try to you know beat that dead horse, I want to talk about something else, which is the family the macro archetypes of mechanics over the course of magic's history. And this is where things get a little dicey for some people, just like in anything. The, way, the reason I got to thinking about this is because my mind seems to work better when I can compartmentalize things, when I can find similarities between things. I think it's why I enjoy magic so much is like trying to connect dots, even sometimes where it doesn't look like they should be. And in doing this with mechanics in trying to bleed, you know, trying to figure out what mechanics are most like each other, it really kind of revved up the deck building engine again. I'm really excited to get home and get to building decks today or get to tuning decks today. So for me, as is tradition, I always seem to find a way to file everything away into three distinct camps with the little nuanced things in between. The first one I want to talk about is the most egregious of the mechanical identities. It's the most obvious one. It's the one we see the... It's the one we we are most readily, like, mind, body, and soul ready to dive headfirst into when we see them. And that is the parasitic mechanics. Or the aggressive mechanics, which is to say... When a mechanic is parasitic, when a mechanic is aggressive by design, it wants you to play a very specific style of deck. When I say that, I mean like, I'm not talking about Luris asking you to play a bunch of card, a bunch of permanents that cost two or less, because even within that, even within that wheelhouse, there's a lot of different ways you can build that deck. The idea behind parasitic mechanics is actually the opposite. The decks are, there's not a lot of variation in decks that are built around parasitic mechanics. The idea behind a parasitic mechanic is you want to play as many of the cards that do that thing as possible, and in exchange, all of them get better. Individually they may be less powerful, but put together they are infinitely greater than the sum of their parts like mind-blowingly better than the sum of their parts. Some of the, the most important examples of parasitic mechanics are tribal decks. And one of the reasons you buy into parasitic mechanics is the fact that they buy you both a level of efficiency and card advantage. They tend to pay you off in both ways. A really good example is like tribal decks, You look at elves and goblins. Elves pay you off with a massive, overwhelming mana advantage. Similar to a storm deck. Similar to uh, something an engine card like a wilderness reclamation. They're, they're mechanics and designs that are pushing you down a very, very particular path. But if you follow the rules that these mechanics, these card designs give you, you are paid off in a massive, meaningful, robust way. In the case of Wilderness Reclamation, you essentially get to take two turns for every one of your opponents. In the case of a card like Fires of Invention, you get to play double the mana worth of spells compared to your opponent. In the case of... uh, What is it? In the case of Goblins decks. You get to put large amounts of power and toughness onto the table way sooner than you have any business doing, and it gets to start attacking. You know, A card like Goblin Lackey is not very good if you don't have a lot of goblins in your deck. <clears throat> it's also not very good if those goblins don't then help you make or get more goblins. So... The more goblins you play in your deck, and the more cards in your deck that care about goblins that are themselves goblins, the better all of them will be. You know, Skirk Prospector is a, a reasonable Magic card because it can jump you from one to three mana on turn two, allowing you to cast a three-drop, then cast another three-drop. Like it's fine. But when you play Skirk Prospector with Goblin War Chief, and then can untap and cast Siege Game Commander. Now you're doing stuff. Now you're doing something huge. Another really good example of a parasitic mechanic is Affinity. I don't need to tell you how busted Affinity is. It reduces the cost of your cards to well below what their mana threshold should be. Any, any mechanic that allows you to passively generate an advantage just by playing a specific card type that eventually ends in you casting all of your spells in your hand for one to zero mana is unyieldingly powerful there's a reason the artifact lands are banned in modern there's a reason affinity is still one of the better strategies in pauper even though cards like gorilla shaman and various other powerful artifact removal spells exist in in pauper it's because affinity is busted when everything comes together. <laughs> Dredge is another classic example of a parasitic mechanic where, as someone on Twitter put it, you could print a literal blank piece of cardboard. No mana cost, doesn't do anything except it has the words Dredge 6 on it. And it's one of the best cards in the deck now. Because the more cards you play that have dredge and the more cards you play that allow you to draw cards and put cards into your graveyard, ideally in reverse order, putting cards into your graveyard and then drawing, the more powerful all of your dredge cards are going to be and the more powerful your supporting infrastructure for them is going to be. I still have vivid memories of the old extended format and getting turned to by dredge. They cast careful study on turn one and breakthrough for zero on turn two and you'd die pretty reliably because you would dredge four times, mill a bunch of bridge from belows, and narc amoebas, and then you would cast Dread Return, and then you would revive Flamekin Zealot with a ton of zombies on the battlefield, and then you would kill your opponent. Now, to do the math, if you mill milled two bridges and a Flamekin Zealot and a Dread Return out of four dredge attempts with Breakthrough, and then discard your hand, which could potentially also contain copies of Bridge from Below. And or the Dread Return and or the Flame Zealot. You could just kill your opponent on turn two because you would bring back the Flame Zealot, give everybody plus one, plus one haste, and attack them for Xaxes on turn two. It's kind of disgusting. Sometimes you do it on turn one with the help of Chromebox. <laughs> because why not? the deck was silly so how does it work if you yeah, you don't buy into dredge a little bit you don't like yes I know there were mid-range decks in standard when dredge was in standard that played like two Graveshell Scarabs and a Life from the Loam as an engine like that's fine Graveshell Scarab was a hard card to get rid of But when you're in for dredge, you really want to be in for dredge. Because it goes from a fair mechanic to an unbalanced unfair mechanic very quickly. Same goes for affinity, same goes for you know tribal themes, even the mid-rangier ones. Fairies was an unfair tribal theme. Bitter Blossom should have never been made a fairy. Because the fact that it could pump out the kinds of tokens that cards like Sionavuna and Spellstarter Sprite cared about while at the same time being champion material for Mistbind Click once it started to once your life total started to become an issue like it was both your best card against aggro and your best card against control and it was because of the way the surrounding infrastructure around Bitter Blossom was so powerful Spellstarter Sprite allowed you to counter spells because you could count the Bitter Blossom toward your number of fairies you controlled for Spellstarter Sprite. So untapping a bitter blossom once with nothing else on the battlefield would allow you to spell starter sprite a three draw. Oh, and by the way, I can still kill your kill your creature or uh, bounce your thing with this unsummon. Like, right. come on. The tempo is huge in step scion of una untap attack you like let's let's get the race on also you can't blow up my bitter blossom because my fairies have shroud and then eventually we miss mine click tap all your lands you're gonna die like and in that same situation the bitter blossom does a good job protecting you from having your face blown off by an aggro deck and then once your life total becomes a liability you can just turn it into a 4-4 that will put the bitter blossom back if they kill the 4-4, which will conceivably even up the stakes on the battlefield. It was just a messed up card design. And a lot of it was made possible because of how many good fairies cards there were. My friend Mike Weeks up in North Dakota played fairies from the day Lorwyn released until the day it rotated out of standard. And he was the saddest person, I think, quite possibly in the world, when he was no longer allowed to play fairies in Standard anymore. He played fairies in Extended before the Riptide Laboratory technology was found. And it was because of the fact that he could use Spellstarter Sprite. He could use scion of Una to turn the game from a controlling one to an aggressive one. Flip the game, flip the script on a dime. You don't see that with a, with a mechanic like some of the other ones we're going to talk about. Parasitic mechanics want you to build your deck a specific way. And in exchange, they pay you off leagues above the average efficiency and or value that you should be getting. Thoughtcast is a messed up magic card when you're playing a lot of artifacts. When you're not, it's really not. You know, the deck, if I had to build an Oathbreaker deck tomorrow, I would build Sahili Sublime Artificer with Thoughtcast as a signature spell because Sahili makes artifact tokens, which in turn makes both the Thoughtcast better and it makes the Sahili better because it means I can flesh out the deck with a lot of artifacts, which in turn makes my Thoughtcast better. It's a very simple, straightforward implementation that's probably a little too good, if I'm being honest. So, moving from the, the parasitic or the aggressive mechanics, the ones that dictate to you in no uncertain terms how you're going to play magic, how you're going to build your deck in order to support these, we move to the second stage, which I would call the semi-parasitic or semi-linear mechanics. Or jokingly, I called them the passive aggressive mechanics, which are the mechanics that are good on face value. Like individually, the cards that have them are like solid. But if you want to buy in, there's a deck there and it probably makes all your cards better. These kinds of mechanics tend to pay you off pretty consistently in the form of value. Ie card selection, card draw, or you know, graveyard recursion, something along those lines. These are the kinds of mechanics that really want you to, like they, they gently suggest to you how you need to play Magic. A really good example of one of these mechanics is heroic. The Boros Feather deck did not play a lot of heroic cards. What it did play was a lot of spells that targeted your own creatures. Boros Heroic is a really good example of, uh, to, to clarify, the Boros Heroic deck prior to the printing of Lurus <clears throat> The Boros Heroic deck with uh, 10th District Legionnaire, Adonto Vanguard, Feather the Redeemed. Because, like, Adonto Vanguard doesn't do anything particularly astonishing in that shell it's just a creature that's really good to target with stuff because it's hard to kill in response 10th district legionnaire is a really good card to target because it gets a little bit bigger and gives you some card selection most importantly when you're playing a card like defiant strike and planning to loop it repeatedly giving you the scribe before the draw turns every defiant strike into a preordain and then you get it back at the end of the turn thanks to feather that's a lot of value that's a lot of control over the cards you're drawing, and that's really important in a deck like this. But you can take that idea, that approach of I can get this. You know, you take that approach. You can even take that approach to Pioneer, where you can take Feather and Defiant Strike and play a card like Young Pyromancer, which gets, which pays you off for targeting your stuff with with, uh, instants and sorceries by just making you a token every time you play an instant or sorcery. That's value. It's powerful. That's effective. I like it. But on that sa- by that same token, uh, uh, by that same token, you can move to uh, a more dedicated heroic build. And suddenly you're in for cards like favored hoplite, more, more card effects that are similar to 10th district legionnaire. Maybe you play the third color, you know, you keep going a little bit further down the rabbit hole. Originally I had energy under the parasitic mechanics and to an extent it is, but based on how it was used while it was in standard, it actually falls more in line with what we're talking about here. You could build a dedicated energy deck. The Teemer energy deck was one of the better mid range decks of the standard format, but it was largely on the axis of it had the best mana it had uh, a lot of cards that generated value and it gained access because it played so many energy cards. It gained access to a resource that it could use like additional mana, you know, use like additional mana and or uh, card text to stockpile like Whirler Virtuoso on its face is just a two, three for two, three that makes a one, one flyer. Like, if the ability to make 3 energy resolves, it's a 2-3 three, for 3 that makes a 1-1 one, one flyer. So it's 3 power, 4 toughness for 3 mana, 1-1 one, one of which flies. That's okay. That's, that's a pretty good on-rate card. Makes it difficult to play them with a bunch of spot removal. Rogue Refiner drawing a card is really effective, but it also gives you that 2 energy, which can turn into something later. And then the further you go down that energy rabbit hole, the more powerful kinds of effects you can start to stockpile, and the decisions you make matter more. But even without Rogue Refiner and Attune with Aether in the format to give you free energy just laying around, cards like Glintleaf Siphoner, Whirler Virtuoso, Aether Hub were still reasonable includes to decks that weren't interested in lots of energy. Because a 3-4 for three mana that's spread across two bodies is not unreasonable. It's good against aggro because it's two bodies to chump block with to allow you to get to your haymakers. It's good against control because it's uh, two bodies. It's harder for spot removal to keep you in check. So on and so forth. And it's the kind of card that like, If they have a lot of spot removal, you can just stock up several copies of Whirler Virtuoso's energy in the bank so that when the last one resolves and they finally don't have the removal spell, you've got enough energy banked up that you can just make a bunch of tokens and now they're on a clock. But on balance, like Glint Sleeve Siphoner was just a reasonable engine card. Another really good example of one of these mechanics is Adventure in Standard right now. A lot of the most heavily played adventure cards are just good magic cards. Lovestruck Beast is a good magic card. Bonecrusher Giant's a really good magic card. Brazen Borrower's a really good magic card. But you put all of them into the same deck, and then you play Lucky Clover and Edgewall Innkeeper, and they go from being good magic cards to each one of them become scalingly more powerful. You get access to a lot of additional card advantage. You get a lot of additional information. You can make a lot of decisions in a given turn. You get a lot of options at your disposal. You know, Fae of Wishes becomes part of that shell. Escape to the Wild, so on and so forth. You gain access to a lot, a wealth of power levels. But in the end, a lot of that power level is rooted in the fact that you're gaining all this extra value by buying into this energy. It's not necessarily that the deck is just busted. It's, it's, Very good. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a mid-rangey big creature deck that wants to kill you by attacking you with giant beanstalk giants and four threes and three ones with flying and five fives. There's nothing actually fundamentally unfair about what you're doing. You're just doing the mid-range thing and then you're... Dabbling a little bit of unfair into it by buying into this synergy. By by that same token, I keep I keep making that joke. Eventually, it's going to stick, just like some of the spells we're trying to cast. Um, by that by that same thought process, you know you can just build a team or mid range deck where you just play like you know questing beasts and uh, questing beast shifting ceratopses brazen Borrower still probably got a place in that deck maybe you use uh you know gross spiral Uro and you're a more dedicated like traditional team or value mid-range deck but like bone crusher giant and brazen Borrower still have a place in that deck maybe that's something i need to build i have all these cards i need to stop talking to y'all uh, you know bone crusher giant and and brazen bar were just independently very good magic cards but then when you buy into the synergy behind the adventure mechanic there's also enough there to create a more linear shell so it kind of toes the line adventure toes the line between being a parasitic mechanic where you want as many cards with adventure as possible in order to maximize all of them to being the next classification i want to talk about which is well we'll get to it in a minute But there's a ton of examples of mechanics like this over the years. (coughs) Excuse me. Oh, I'm trying to think, trying to think. A mechanic like Battalion from Return to Rev wants you to be attacking with lots of creatures. Well, naturally, your red-white aggro decks are going to want to attack with lots of creatures. But if you buy in on enough of these battalion cards, you, you curve your deck down so that you can more reliably have three creatures in play and attacking, you know, haste enablers and or just more creatures with haste in order to be attacking sooner, you know, keep going down that rabbit hole a little bit further. Suddenly every card you play that has battalion gets a little bit better. That's okay. It just makes your cards better. That's good. You know, in uh, in pauper. The there's the the deck called Boros Monarch is not really that deep into the monarch sub theme. And that's okay. But by you know, on balance, if you build a Queen Marchesa deck in uh, in Commander, you probably really want to have monarch a lot. So, like these are the kinds of mechanics that are, that are interesting. They're, they present some of the biggest challenges to deck builders because you can buy way in on them and potentially get paid off. But even if you don't, these cards are still fine. You know, a card like 10th District Legionnaire is probably still just like a reasonable magic card in a Boros deck that really feels like it wants to play a card like Reckless Rage. You know, if you're playing Feather and Dreadhorde Arcanist, just to make use of Reckless Rage, you probably just play 10th District Legionnaire because it gets a 1-1 counter every time you target it. That's a good thing. But you can also, you know, take the deck into Pioneer and play Favored Hoplite and 10th District Legionnaire and Sater Hoplite and Young Pyromancer and go way further down that rabbit hole and be more interested in just... Really pushing the value of the heroic triggers and getting as you know as many things with the word heroic or whenever you cast a spell that targets a creature you control as you can. Both of these things are viable. That's the point I'm trying to make about uh, semi-parasitic, semi-linear mechanics. Is that the approach of being partially in or all the way in, both of these things are viable. That's good. That's the way they're designed to be. And then the last mechanical identity I would go with, I call it nonlinear, passive, unyieldingly passive, which is to say, these are the mechanics that just reward you for playing magic. They require very little in the way of a deck building concession in order to take advantage of in a meaningful, powerful, proactive way. And these are the mechanics that Wizards tends to miss on the most, which is to say they're the ones that when, uh, when Wizards misses on, a, on one of these mechanics, the results are t- tend to be either really, really good or really, really bad. And there's not really any in between. It's very rare that a, a passive style mechanic is just fine. They're usually fantastic or awful. There's not a lot of in-between. And again, that's okay. A really good example of one of these is Delirium or Threshold. The kinds of cards that just care about what's in your graveyard. Well, if you play a game of Magic, I should probably clarify before I go any further when I say these are the kinds of cards that reward you for playing magic they're the kinds of cards that reward you for playing a fair game of magic which is to say playing to the battlefield exchanging resources with your opponent and you know ending up with a combination of permanents on the battlefield and cards in your graveyard playing that way is like your classic tournament grinder mentality and that's where these mechanics lie that's where these mechanics are interested in being they don't they don't want you to work too hard for them like when we first started working on the delirium package for Nick's deck back in uh, two, uh fall of 2016 uh Kaladesh. we first started working on it The original deck was buying in a little bit on Energy Synergy. <laughs> Rhymes, it's funny. It was buying in a little bit on Energy Synergy, but for the most part, the big thing it was trying to do was be an aggro deck. And the biggest issue he was having is some of the local guys were playing a lot of control decks, and they were just playing literal piles of removal spells and then would just play something big and dumb like a Sphinx of Lost Truths or you know, something that would get on the board... And be difficult to remove for a deck that, you know, aggro at that point didn't have a lot of removal available to it. There wasn't a lot of burn to help push through a big attack. The pump spells weren't great. So, we got to work and I said, well, if you really want to beat up on a control deck, one of the most reliable ways to do that is to keep applying continuous pressure. You make it hard for them to keep your board clear. So we bought in a little bit on Delirium Synergy. We made a Black Splash. Uh, We played Vessel of Nascency to help smooth draws and to put cards into the graveyard to turn Grim into a 4-4 on turn three. And in so doing, we also loaded in a Synergy package, which was Scrap Heap, Scrounger, And prized amalgam. Now, normally with a card like prized amalgam, you want as many cards that will turn it on as possible. But the thing about prized amalgam is it can be part of a compact engine too. Scrap Heap, Scrounger doesn't want anything, doesn't ask anything of you, except that you have creatures in your graveyard. And if you do, it'll come out of the graveyard by eating one of them. All prized amalgam wants you to do is put a creature into play from your graveyard. Well, Scrap Heap Scrounger is more than happy to fill that bill. At which point, the prized amalgam will join it. And it was one of the better jobs I've done designing a deck in a long time. Well, fast forward a few months later, and I was lamenting the fact that a lot of the mid-range decks in the format seem to just be interested in you know, either trying to bludgeon their opponent with increasingly large threats or trying to value out their opponent with no in-between. And Nick and I sat down and built a bigger mid-range deck that played Grimflare and Ishkana. And we also played Liliana Death's Majesty and Walking Ballista because Walking Ballista could then, in turn, in conjunction with uh, Vessel nascency, Put a creature in the graveyard that would turn Grimflayer into a 4-4, which allowed it allowed it to punch a little bit above its weight class. It allowed us to play... Uh, what is the card? Uh, traverse the Ovenwald to go get additional copies of Walking Ballista against the Copycat decks. You know, if you, you Vessel on three and they don't have the turn four combo... You can just ballista. You'll know, crack vessel at the end of your turn. go get ballista. Untap ballista for two. Now I can interrupt the combo twice. And what we ended up coming to was a deck that like there was there was definitely a delirium sub theme. We were playing Traverse of the Oven wall. we were playing Grim player. we were playing Ishkina. But around them, we were just playing a lot of reasonable magic cards for the time. We didn't really have to make any deck building concessions to them. You wanted to play Vessel to smooth your draws over and help fix fix mana. You wanted to play grapple with the pass to mill cards into the graveyard and then buy them. You know, grapple with the pass plus walking ballista was a recurring way to interrupt the cat combo. And it was easy. And that was another easy deck that Nick went on a like a five or six FNM streak where he finished top two or better. Including one such roundhouse kicking me in the face when I tried to build a a blue-red prowess deck in standard because we had Soulscore Mage and Stormchaser Mage at the same time. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed it. It wasn't good. (laughs) But... Taking all that into consideration and moving to another good example of what we have going on right now, Delve is a really good example of a a passive mechanic where Delirium hits the sweet spot in terms of appropriate power level for the lack of deck building concessions you have to make. Delve punches way above the power level it should. Because the only thing Delve asks of you is to have cards in your graveyard. And in exchange, you get to reduce the cost of the cards you're casting. Because, you know, making your cards cheaper has never ended poorly for Watsy in the past. All you have to do is play Magic, and later in the game, you can get an Ancestral Recall. All you have to do is play Magic, and you can get a one-drop 5-5 or 4-5 that's going to then fuel further iterations of this, this approach. see what I'm driving at here? I'm not driving anymore. I'm pulled into the driveway, but still. The idea here behind Delve is it's supposed to reward you for playing magic by giving you efficient magic cards. But it doesn't just give you efficient magic cards. It gives you unreasonably efficient magic cards. And that's the thing. When it comes to these kinds of mechanics, they either give you efficiency in a big way or they give you value in a big way. Ishkana, Grimflayer, Traverse the Ovenwald give you value. Traverse the Ovenwald goes from being a lay of the land to being a demonic tutor for one mana. Ishkana goes from being a a fat body that eventually starts slowly, very slowly draining your opponent of life to being something that gums up the board and can just fireball your opponent to death out of nowhere. Grimflayer goes from being like kind of a mopey creature to being one of the better ones available. And I mean, that's, that's primarily value because Grimflayer then turns around and gives you card selection. It gives you more reliable card selection because you keep getting in there with the trample. By contrast, like, Delve gives you Tassiger and Gurmag Angler and Murderous Cut and Tombstalker. Like, two-drop 5-5 Flyer is unplayable compared to a lot of these other Delve cards. That's how powerful these Delve cards are. That's ridiculous. Some would say utterly ridiculous. No? Never mind. That was another joke for last week. Utterly ridiculous. So these are the kinds of mechanics that are, that it's harder to agree on how good they are, right? Like most of the parasitic mechanics are just like, they're good. They're straightforward. They implement well. They're really good. Affinity, storm, dredge, tribal. I guess you could argue tribal is kind of hit and miss, but when executed correctly, Tribal is usually pretty, is usually really good. The kinds of decks that seem to build themselves. You know, Wilderness Reclamation is a deck that builds itself. I know it's not a full-on archetype, but even like just a flash deck with Wilderness Reclamation is really good because you can use mana on your own turn and you activate effects of stuff like Castle Vantress fix your draws, set everything up, and then untap your lands Wilderness Reclamation and interact on your opponent's turn. And even though you can build the deck a couple of different ways, the deck is still just very good and still largely wants you to be playing a lot of cards and getting lots of extra mana. Fires of Invention, very much the same way. You want to be casting the most powerful thing you can at every point on the curve, and you want to be doing it twice. It's not really a... You know, yes, you can do it in different colors. You can do it in a lot of different ways, but the end result are the end results are decks that play very similar. the the semi the semi parasitic. I mean, vehicles is another really good example of semi parasitic, because the best vehicles decks didn't play a lot of vehicles. They didn't play a lot of payoff cards for vehicles. Some of them were pretty good, but I got my teeth kicked in by a dedicated red, white vehicles deck because Dapala just went unanswered for a few turns and kept my opponent drawing gas. You know, they were playing the the veteran motorist. They were playing, um, what is it? What is the card's name? Uh, I can't remember. You know, another good example is like the the Hardened Scales archetype is one of these where you can just play Hardened Scales and Winding Constrictor in a deck that doesn't really care all that much, but like plays a lot of creatures that just happen to be reasonable. You know, play it with Walking Ballista, Hangerback, Walker, and just kind of gradually overpower your opponent in classic big, dumb, green mid-range style. Or you can buy in on the premise of playing... Uh, mono artifact creatures with metallic mimic so that you can harden scales on one metallic mimic on two and then drop every x cost construct in your hand with two plus one plus one counters for no mana it's a really powerful ability on balance something like adapt is another good example of a passive mechanic like you don't really have to do anything to play Adapt other than pay mana. In a card like Growth Chamber Guardian, all you're doing is casting a 2-drop and then making it into your 3-drop. If it lives. You're forcing your opponent to have an answer for your 3-mana activation, and you still have a bunch of cards in your hand. That's not really any different than any other game, except sometimes you have an extra card left. That's not a bad thing. You know, Benthic Biomancer is like a reasonable magic card. One drop curves into its adaptability. Maybe that's a case where you can get away with playing something like an Obosh or something like a, you know, Benthic Biomancer, I'd imagine, is actually a pretty reasonable magic card with Lurus because it loads stuff into the graveyard. Like, Luris doesn't really ask all that much of you from a deck building perspective. That's why it's so good in older formats. It doesn't ask you to do anything you shouldn't already be doing. Building your decks with a tighter, more efficient mana curve. That's why Loris is too powerful in older formats. And I would argue companion largely sits in this gray area where some of them, like all of them are fairly passive in how they, how they impact the game. They ask you to build your deck a certain way, yes, but a lot of the times the kind of deck you would want to play that card in for whatever ability it has is exactly how you'd build your deck anyway. The lone exception being Lutri, who's just like fine, I guess. Like it's an extra card in your hand, but like Kahira, the the cat, the the tribal one. The only thing you have to do is make sure everything has the same type, and a real easy thing to do to make sure everything has the same type is don't play any creatures. That's why the blue white control deck and Pioneer can play it. Uh, Scotty Porosky, one of the one of the one of my Twitter people. I hope I pronounced your name right. Plays uh, what is the card's name? Zirda, the the Boros companion. Because every permanent in his deck has an activated ability. Because the only permanents in his deck are not. What is it? Yeah, every permanent has an activated ability. Because even Shark Typhoon is a permanent, but it has cycling, so it has an activated ability. So Zierta is allowed to be the companion. It just functionally starts the game as an eighth card in your hand. Like, these are the kinds of mechanics that buying in doesn't really pay you off, like, super substantially. It kind of makes your other cards better, but by and large, it just makes your first card better. It's a very effective strategy. It's one of the one of the tried and true axioms of magic. It's the reason a lot of people are already fed up with companions, is because, frankly, like playing 20 extra cards in your fires of invention deck is not hard. Playing 20 extra cards in your Bant Ramp deck is almost a necessity with how many cards you draw between Teferi and Hydroid Crisis and um Oh, what is it? You know, the number of lands you can pull out of your deck when Nissa who shakes the world if she ever lives to ultimate. Like, oh no, I get to play more interaction and more haymakers in my deck that I... Now I get to justify having room for all these cards. Okay. Sure. Like, now my my Nissa Growth Spiral Uro deck gets to play an extra 20 ways To impact the board, like, Teamer Elementals with Yorian loves being able to play 20 extra cards. Because now they have room for all the other stuff. (laughs) It's not asking all that much of you. The only companion, really, that asks too much of you from a deck-building perspective is Lutri. And it's the one that's banned in the one format that it wouldn't ask very much of you. So bear in mind over the years, when it comes to mechanics, always try to view them through the lens of how, what they're asking of you from a deck building perspective. Are they asking a whole lot in order to maximize something? Are they telling you, are they dictating to you aggressively how you're supposed to play the game? If they are, they're parasitic mechanics. If you need to play a lot of cards of a certain type, Just to get value out of this mechanic, what you're getting back better be way better than what you're putting in. If they're asking you to play a few cards that you otherwise normally wouldn't in order to really maximize it, but a lot of the cards are like fine on their own, see how far down the rabbit hole you can go, push it as hard as you need to. But at the end of the day, some of those cards are still probably just reasonable to play in other decks. And then if it's not asking too much of you, just play the cards. Like, I don't know what to tell you beyond that. Mechanics and magic are weird. Some of them make you work harder than others. But a lot of the times, the ones that make you work the hardest are the ones that will pay you off the most if you get it right. Right? So that's what I want all of us to do, right? Go out after this is all over and go get it right. And while we're on that subject, if you want to get it right next week, if you want me to get it right next week, find me on Twitter. I'm at Homeward Path MTG. Find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. Find me on the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, like our newest patron, Brandon Wheeler, who's been a longtime listener Big supporter, one of my best magic friends that I've never met face to face now. If you want to be a patron like Brandon, patreon.com slash mtg You will gain access to the Discord at one dollar a month. At three dollars a month, your deck gets pushed to the front of the line to do for the fast lane segment when we do it. And at five dollars a month, we collaborate and write an episode about a topic that you want to cover in the way that you want me to cover it. And Brandon's got a really good one lined up, but I really want to do some research on it and make sure I know what I'm talking about before I go into it, because it's gonna be an it's gonna be a topic I want to take great care in uh, in approaching. It's a it's a really difficult one, so it's one I want to do some more research on before I try to before I try to pretend I'm anything resembling an authority on it. So, again, that's all I have for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. So let's go into our favorite segment every week. It's time for the MTG Dad Jokes. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I have three of those little bundles of joy. I'm not going to say the first thing that came to mind because I love my children. I just don't always like what they do. But, I have three of them in the house. As such, the kind of humor you're allowed to indulge in changes when you're trying to raise respectable members of society that don't embarrass you in public. As such, I do that one last time. I bet I did. I'm pretty sure I did. That one, I know I didn't. Ah. Uh, But I love a good pun, and I love magic, and putting the two together just seemed like a no-brainer. And then I found out they were already out there, and people were already doing them. So I thought, every week on the show, I read as many of these as I can find. First up is from Brian Sharp, who's another longtime listener, who says, Episode 71, I will reply to it again, because these things are never just funny once. I said, it's almost like they cycle. (laughs) Like it. Oh, had another one. Uh, Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive on MTG Goldfish, put up against the odds, Song of Creation, to which Jess Estefan said, Are you only playing against Obosh decks? <laughs> against the odds. I said, Oh, this is utterly fantastic. <laughs> Last but not least, ah, uh, click draw, click draw. Last but not least, we have from the Maverick Girl on Twitter put up, uh, the price jump of vexing Shusher, which has jumped 193% in a few days. Not just dead sure why, weird commander stuff, I don't know. Says, nope, don't like that. And Chantel Campbell says, "You would you say it's vexing? And then we have the gif of Horatio Kane putting on his sunglasses. Come on, that's great. It's definitely vexing. I don't like watching prices go up on anything. That's all I have for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, remember, as always, if you like the content and you're consuming it on YouTube, obviously, leave a like, comment, subscribe. If you, again, if you want to support the channel directly, patreon.com slash mtg. If you want to check out other content from great creators, head over to our sponsor, puremtgo.com. All the stuff from the Constructed Criticism Network is there as well as, uh, my brain is non-functional today, as well as the stuff that I put out every week. And last but not least, I'm going to leave you with the thing I've been leaving you with ever since the whole pandemic began. Everybody's going through something tough right now. You never know what somebody else is going through. So when you're dealing with people, it's really easy to be interested in trying to dunk on them. It's really easy to be interested in trying to trying to belittle, trying to put down. I'm not wired that way. So when I'm interacting with people, I always remember the words of wisdom from the 12th doctor portrayed brilliantly by Peter Capaldi in which he said to himself as he was regenerating, Never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish, love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go out, well, interact with each other anyway. Be kind, and we'll catch you next week.